Uh, we've been starting, we started a series last Sunday called Who's Your One? And the purpose of the series through the International Mission Board and through the Southern Baptist Convention is to get us thinking about one person that we can share the gospel with this year. It doesn't seem like much, but one person is significant in the kingdom of God. Uh, brief <clears throat> clip here by uh, Johnny Hunt. Boy, I miss Johnny Hunt. He used to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, I really miss him, but here's his video. 7.6 billion. Now that's a big number. That's how many people there are on Earth. In the U.S. alone, estimates say that out of 328 million, there are nearly 246 million lost souls, men, women, boys, and girls that don't know Jesus. Those numbers seem big, but what if we were to focus on the number one? The Bible tells us that heaven rejoices every time one person comes to know Jesus. What if we were to focus on the daily conversations, those everyday meaningful interactions for Christ that can truly make an eternal difference in someone's life? We can reach our nation with the gospel. We can reach the millions. We can reach our friends and family and neighbors by starting with one. Who's your one? So yeah, the series that we're looking at here focuses on personal evangelism. We don't like to talk about it a lot, and often we don't. And so what I liked about this series uh, were, were actually many things, but the primary focus being on picking one person and sharing the gospel with. When you think about it, just by a show of hands, how many of you here today are saved? Just by a show of hands. <clears throat> there was somebody who shared the gospel with you, and to them, you were one. And so when we think about going out in the highways and byways of life, we pick one person, and <clears throat> we'll, we'll go through about how to do that. But anyway, think about somebody took the time to share with you the gospel message. For me, it was an army chaplain who saw me on my bunk, we were in the field, and he said, Sergeant Frazier, why don't you follow me? I'd like to talk with you. And he just very simply shared the gospel with me. And with so many things going on in my life at the time, uh, it was a perfect moment. It was a divine uh, intervention, if you will. And years later, I'd been a pastor. Audrey tracked down the chaplain that led me to saving faith, and I talked with him on the phone about the significance of his obedience to share the gospel and the impact it had. Not that I had anything, but that what he did was share the gospel with a future pastor, and he had no idea he was just being faithful to share the gospel. So anyway, as we look at Luke Chapter 5, we're going to talk today about the healing of the paralytic, the man that was paralyzed. It's a familiar story. We pick up in verse 17. And by the way, on the back of the bulletin, you'll see the outline. You can follow along there uh, if you got a bulletin this morning. On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, 
Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord, the deutemes, the dynamite of the Lord was with him to heal. If we do a quick look at the map, you can see Judea down here. Here you have Jerusalem. Here you have Capernaum, which is probably where this, most scholars agree, was Capernaum. And then you have Galilee. So from, from this region right here, we're, we're only given one geographical position, and that is Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem to Capernaum was about 78 miles. And, of course, you see these mountains here. So the people that came from Judea, they had to go through rough terrain to get there. Uh, 78 miles could quickly become a longer distance because of the terrain. And there was what I call the home jersey. There were uh, lawyers and Pharisees from the Galilee region which didn't have to travel as far. Jesus always drew crowds. He always drew crowds. When we look at the issue here, I love this picture because it really does depict two things. The average person was excited about Jesus. These guys back here, not so much. Because they were constantly scrutinizing Jesus' ministry. Who is this man that eats with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this guy to come in and tell us how the kingdom of God is? And so Jesus always drew this. And in fact, there's five stories that go from our text in 517 to 611 that shows a dichotomy between these two. Excitement and skepticism and anger. Actually, it culminates in 6-7 and 6-11, chapter 6, verse 11, with anger and aggression on the part of those who supposedly knew the law. Supposedly the righteous of God. And yet, they missed the point of Jesus' ministry. There were three main groups in Judaism at the time of Christ. Number one were the Pharisees and teachers of law. They're synonymous with scribes. They're mostly, for the most part, connected to the Pharisees. They, had in, they were the ones that interpreted the law. So they would be the scholars. They would be the scholars that would sit there and go, okay, this is what the law of Moses says. This is what the, the Old Testament text says, and they would interpret that. They were also oral traditionalists. Oral traditionalists means that these oral traditions were passed down through the time. The problem with the oral tradition past the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, was that the translation often became more and more rigid and more and more legalistic. So many times in our lives when we read the Bible, we can become more legalistic, more rigid. The second group 
Oh, and by, by the way, the Pharisees did believe the soul was immortal. They, uh, rewards were based on works, good or bad. And they did believe in the bodily resurrection, but not after three days. After three days, the resurrection was impossible. The Sadducees only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Penta meaning five, tuk meaning tool. So the Sadducees believed that God spoke only through the tool of the first five books of the Bible. That's why it's called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, first five books. Anything beyond that was not inspired. So when you get into the latter Old Testament, you start realizing, wait a minute, the Sadducees only believe in the first five books. They did not believe in the resurrection, and that is why they were sad, you see. They did not believe in the resurrection. That's my pastor joke for the day. Feel free to share that with your friends, with your family. The Essenes were separatists. They did not actually get involved with the culture. They were uh, more separatist. Uh, they denied the resurrection of the body. However, they believed in the spiritual resurrection. And of course, they did believe in a punishment reward system. Looking back over this, you could see how Jesus could get into trouble here, but not so much here. So it's quite Shocking. And of course, obviously, get into big trouble here. Sadducees denied it. So when you think about this, this Pharisee and lawyer sitting around Jesus, you know what they're doing. You know instinctively what they're doing. They are waiting for the aha moment. Got you, Jesus. But Jesus never had the aha moment. He gave them aha moments. But he never got caught in anything because Jesus was the Son of God. He knew, the, he knew the Old Testament better than these guys. So that brings us to our narrative. We just read the first part. Jesus is teaching and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. They didn't come there to really watch uh, him perform miracles. They came there to have a moment where we got you. And it plays out in 6.7 and 6.11 where they become incensed and outraged at Jesus in these five narrative stories. So a narrative is simply a telling of a story and this is what we're getting into, the story of the, of the paralyzed man. When you do narrative preaching, the best way to do it, and I tweaked some of this again because I know better than the International Mission Board how to do this, but... Um, I kind of changed this to fit my own style. Um, so when you do narrative preaching, what you do is you go through the text and you pick out different points that you can apply from the text. So what we do see, first of all, is that these men had a mission. They had a mission. Notice verse 18a. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were sink, seeking to bring him in. Stop. These men had a mission. They were focused. 
behold should grab our attention in the Greek language. Some were bringing a man on a bed who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in. We don't really know how many people carried this man. Every picture that I looked up, four men are carrying. It was probably six or seven or eight, particularly what they, had, what they did in the narrative. But the fact is, they were bringing this man who was paralyzed. Paraluo. Paraluo. It doesn't mean much in the sentence in the sermon, but I, I think it does. This is the Greek reading of that. To suffer paralysis in one or more limbs, particularly the leg or the foot. So when we look at this man, this paralyzed man, I want you to get the image of a man who is probably more than likely paralyzed from the waist down, unable to walk. And you've got these friends who love this man, and they heard that Jesus was in the area, and they wanted to get this man to Jesus. It was priority. They loved this man, and they had it in their mind. They knew if they could get to Jesus, if they could get their friend to Jesus and make their way and put him in front of Jesus, they knew that Jesus could heal him. These men had a mission. They were seeking zeto. The Greek word zeto, listen to this. To seek to do something, and there's eight different meanings, and I've settled on one. To seek to do something without success, but it refers to an intense search. So this wasn't like, okay, let's go, let's go. Let's get this man to Jesus. Let's get him to Jesus. I know he can heal him. That's intense. And then they go in and they see the crowd in front of the door and they realized that they couldn't do it but they were focused on getting this man to Jesus what's your mission what is your mission today spiritually I know you may have missions like one thing is I want to put food on my table for my family. I, I get that. I would really like to have a promotion in my job. I, I get that. But let me ask you a question this morning. What is your mission spiritually? That's a question that needs to be answered. Let me give you one possible way that you can tree your mission. What's Jesus' mission? Jesus' mission is given to us and I want to read this quickly. At times the crowd has the upper hand. Their physical presence prevented anyone from reaching Jesus. Not these resourceful men. They could not carry, they could not carry the paralyzed man on his pallet to the crowds to Jesus. They would have to make their own way to the master physician. So these men had a mission. And let's look at Jesus' mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. What drives you? What drives you spiritually? You say, well, pastor, these men were going for a physical healing. Yes, but they got more than they bargained for. We'll get into that in a minute. But they, these men knew something. They knew if they could get this man to Jesus, 
that he would be healed. Brothers and sisters, maybe we need to go back and think about our spiritual mission as we live our lives. Lost people all around us that are dying and without Jesus will go to hell. These men loved this man who was physically sick. That'll get taken care of as the narrative unfolds. But they knew in their heart that if they got this man to Jesus, he would heal their friend. These men not only had a mission, they had compassion. So often we defriend and unfriend and unfollow people that we don't agree with. Those are exactly the people that Jesus would try to witness to. The ones that don't like us. People didn't like Jesus. He didn't care. He would go eat with a tax collector. He would go help a sinner. He would even talk to a prostitute. Unheard of. No, we can't go there. We're too righteous. We're too good. We have got to go back and ask a singular question. What is our mission individually? What is our mission? And I see these men here. They definitely had a mission. Secondly, these men had an eager expectation. Verse 18a. And they were seeking to bring him in. Listen to this. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. These men believed in tithemi. To lay before means to place in a particular position. Don't worry. We're going to get you in and we're going to lay you before Jesus. And we know that when we lay you before Jesus, he will heal you. These men had an eager expectation. All they had to do was get him to Jesus, and Jesus would take care of it. Warren Wiersbe, one of my favorite commentaries, commentators, wrote this. To begin with, they had faith that Jesus would heal him. And that, and it is faith that God honors. Their love for the man united them in their efforts so that nothing discouraged them, not even crowd at the door. What do you believe about Jesus this morning? Do you believe Jesus can do anything? Sometimes as we live our lives, we get too churchy. We get too rigid and think, well, Jesus can't possibly save my neighbor. Jesus can't possibly use me. 
And so the level of expectation about what God can do in your life and mine gets dropped and dropped and dropped. And the bar is so low. And we forget that we worship Jesus, the Savior of the world, who is still saving people today. He is. And he, he uses us to reach them. And so when our expectation is exciting, we can see God work in our lives in new ways that we hadn't seen in a long time. But it all starts with an eager expectation that God can save even the vilest offender. You need, a, you need an example of that? The Apostle Paul imprisoning Christians, having them killed. And then on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus Christ. And it radically changes his life. Brothers and sisters, we got to get back to an expectation that God can do. And I'm not talking a charismatic expectation. I'm not talking about having millions of dollars and God's going to give it to me because I believe. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an expectation that God can do anything in your life. Anything. And He can reach that person that has been so hard, so negative, so vile towards us. And yet if we believe that Jesus Christ can save Him, there is an expectation. These men had an expectation. All they needed to do, all they needed somehow was to get this man and lay him in front of Jesus. Sometimes we let our, and the church does it. The church does it. We lower the expectation. God can never do anything here. We're just a small church. Woe is me. We're going to transfer people in from other churches. We're not going to evangelize. We're just going to, you know, transfer growth is transfer growth. They transfer out too. But one mainstay of a Southern Baptist convention has and, ha and will always be, at least as far as I'm concerned, evangelism and getting people to the foot of the cross and get them saved. It's time. That we have an expectation that when you go to work Monday morning and you have an opportunity to share the gospel, you don't, the worst way to do this, ignore, the, ignore these, we're not going to go do all those this morning. But to throw the Bible down somebody's throat is probably not the best evangelistic tool that you have. When you see them hurting, say, wait a minute, can I tell you something? Can I tell you that Jesus loves you? And getting excited about Jesus again. These men had an expectation. They didn't stop. They didn't stop. They, oh, that, the crowd's all there. Sorry, we got to go home. No, they had an expectation. All they wanted to do was to get this man to Jesus. And of course, I'm going to give you a hint. They got more than they bargained for. Our job is simply to bring people before Jesus. It's not our job to save them. Please hear that. Pastor Mike, I don't know how to share the gospel. 
everybody in this room probably knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. And then tell what Jesus meant to you and means to you in your life and what he did, your past life, how you were. Tell them the truth. Tell them you were a low life. Maybe not, but just tell them I was a sinner. I didn't know God. I was a nice person. And by the way, nice people go to hell every day. It's saved people that go to heaven. Not nice people. Not good people. Tell them the day you got saved. I remember that day. Still do. I can still see the old chapel that I was in. And then how your life is now. What Jesus means. That's it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, the guy, the man, or the, the person that you're sharing the gospel with, does that mean God loves me? Yes. Expectation. Get excited again. Thirdly, oh, I want to give you this. I just forgot about it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that works in you. There's nothing God can't do through you. An eager expectation. Are you excited enough to go out right now and start sharing the gospel with your neighbors and friends and family members? Are are you are you excited? You can go the other direction, too. You can become overzealous. And I want to caution. I know your pastor's saying this, right? Years ago, when I was pastoring in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, I went out with a man from the state office and I know he has a heart for Jesus. I know he did. But I fear that day he might have done more damage than good. We were eating at a restaurant, and the waitress came up. She's just there to do her job. And oh my gosh. She said, can I take your order? And he said, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? It wasn't just that. He went through everything. As she kept coming back. It was almost, I was sitting there, I was a young pastor then, and I was going, I'm like, can't you just leave a little card, and it's got the plan of salvation, and he was dogmatic about it. I, I love the guy, but I thought it was inappropriate the way that he did it. To tell you how inappropriate it was, by the end of the meal, a different waitress was coming to our table. So on one hand, you don't want to be obnoxious. But on the other hand, you want to show compassion. 
If you're going to err, error on the side of compassion. People need to see what Jesus means to you before they'll even accept the idea. If they see, and I've seen it before, hardcore, that is not the way to evangelize. Been there, done that. That is not the way to do it. But these men, they had compassion. They had an eager expectation. They also encountered an obstacle. You know, it's kind of funny. I, I spelt it correctly there, and then on my, <laughs> on my sermon notes, I spelt it O-B-S-T-A-C-K-L-E. <laughs> I just now noticed it. So you can't make mistakes. This part of it is not divinely inspired, but <laughs> no. But finding no way to bring him in, this is verse 19. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. You see what their mission was? Their mission was to put this man before Jesus, knowing full well that he could heal him. First century home. Give or take some mud. So, from here, each level's about seven feet, so you have 14 or 15 feet high. Here's the doorway where they would have entered in, and here's a courtyard. Look at the kitchen. Whew. That would be smelly, wouldn't it? Have animals in the house. It's not like a dog. Upstairs living area. So this area right here, we can assume that's what was blocked. They would not have been able to get through the door to get into this courtroom area here, courtyard area here. So the men said, all right, if we can't get through the door, we're going to go through the roof. Right? They get a ladder. Had to be more than four men, by the, by the way. Because they have to support that. Don't ask me how they did it. I just know that when you have an obstacle that will not stop you, it will not stop you. When you really want something bad enough, it will not stop you. And so these men get him up. Uh, these tiles were like roof shingles, and they had to remove some of them. And they drop this man down and you could maybe see these people looking up going what is going on and they see this man lowered and then everybody has to do one of these and you know push people back in the corner and Jesus is watching this you don't think Jesus knew these guys were coming he's the son of God he knows everything And it wasn't just the men. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him let it down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Nothing was going to stop them, not an obstacle, nothing. They knew in their hearts if they just got this man to Jesus, it would be okay. 
John Barry writes this, Luke's telling of this miracle reflects Mark's tradition and includes many details that Mark, uh, Matthew omits. This part of the story shows the great faith of the paralytic and his attendants. They are willing to do whatever is necessary in order to reach Jesus. Have you ever had somebody in your life every time you go to witness or share the gospel with them something comes up and you're not able to share it at that particular time and it it can be difficult but just because that gospel moment didn't happen doesn't mean it won't happen down the road. Is there somebody in your life today that you've been trying to share the gospel with, but for one reason or another, it's just never had the opportunity? Keep going. If God has laid that person on your heart, don't let any obstacle stop you from at least bringing that person to Jesus. I'm foolish enough to believe that if God has put a person on your heart and you follow that through, God will at least give that man the opportunity to hear the gospel. But we have to get back to this idea that Jesus can do anything. And so that we're not derailed when obstacles come across Don't give up. My grandmother Porter and my grandmother Frazier prayed for me for 23 years to receive Christ. And every chance that they got My other grandfather died when I was five. My other grandfather was, he was in his own world. I believe he was saved, but he had tunnel vision. I remember times my grandmother Porter and my grandmother Frazier telling me about Jesus. I remember going with my friend Larry McCabe down to the Church of God Church in our neighborhood. Larry said, would you like to go to church with me? Okay. So we started going to church. And I went to the Sunday school class. I was probably you girls age. And I would go to the Sunday school class and I would look at the literature and I was like, this is so foreign to me. 23 years. October 11th, October 12th, 1981, was a culmination of all of that when I received Christ. My grandparents never gave up. And what I'm encouraging you to do, if there's somebody in your life that is lost, keep at it. Don't let obstacles stop you. Keep at 
sharing the gospel. Show Jesus. Show Jesus. Well, these men got more than they bargained for. They had a mission, they had an eager expectation. They didn't let obstacles hinder them, but what they got was, whoa. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Pistis, that means complete trust. Jesus, as he's as he's, think of this for a minute. Jesus, as he's watching this bed being lowered, going, wow. They really believe in me. Jesus saw, he knew they were there for physical healing. But they also had the belief that Jesus could heal. And Jesus is watching this and he goes, this is what it's about. It's about trusting in Christ. That's what it's about. It's not about baptism and church membership and Sunday school. Although, I will be the first to say, that's a byproduct of your salvation. None of that will get you saved. It's that one-in-one -in -one confrontation with Jesus Christ when you're set before him and you have to make a decision. And Jesus is looking at these men and going, I got one better for him. Man, your sins are forgiven. He addressed all of them. And when he saw their faith, the man's faith, if he didn't believe that Jesus could heal him, there ain't no way he's going. But he says, let's get there. Let's get to Jesus. I know he can heal me. And he, they all go. And they're going to get this man to Jesus regardless. By the way, you can all, this is something else that you can do with somebody that's very hard is that you pray. You pray for that lost person. Lord, soften their heart. Lord, make them willing to listen to the gospel. Lord, help. Because see, this is not about me. It's not about you. It is about the influence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the person. So you have to pray ahead before you share it. Satan won't like that. When you start talking about, I want to lay this person before Jesus, I can tell you somebody that's not going to like that. Guarantee it. Paul said, I tried to come to you three times, but Satan has prevented me. Satan doesn't like the work of God. Of course, I know his future and I know my future, and they're totally different. When he saw their faith, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Pistuo. It's the word believed. Pistuo. You know what that word means? Trust in. Same word as pistis. Different context, same meaning. By the way, even the demons believe 
in Jesus, but they haven't trusted in Jesus. That's a big difference. Abraham trusted, pistuo, trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness or right standing. All we have to do is get people to Jesus, and he will do the rest. But we have to be perceptive, and we have to have an expectation that he will do something in our lives. And then Jesus says, harmatia. That's what he would have said to him, harmatia. That means sins, doing what is contrary to the will of God. Audrey's been showing me these videos of this man who goes around and he gets people who are agnostic and who don't believe in God. And, and before the conversation's over, he's led them to see that they are a sinner separated from God. It's quite amazing, actually. Sin is not doing the will of God. When you boil it down, it's just not doing the will of God. It's doing what is contrary to the will of God. Forgiven a fiamy, I love this word, a fiamy, to, re to remove the guilt resulting from wrongdoing. But more than that, get this, it means to remove the guilt. I've seen people in 30 plus years of pastoral ministry who live with past sins. And they can never shake the guilt of that. And I always ask them, have you asked for forgiveness of that sin? Yes. I say, take it off. That sin is gone. That's why Christ died on the cross, to remove the guilt. But also this word means to remove or to pardon the sin. Do you know what happens when you're pardoned? And you walk out. Presidents pardon people all the time and their, their sentence is done. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. He says, look, your sins, all the bad things you've done in your life, that's gone. That's the gospel. That's the simple gospel. Well, I've spent three quarters this morning now, so... Man, your sins are forgiven, and the scribes begin to question, who is this man that speaks blasphemy? When he perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up and walk? This is going to blow them up. It's like Jesus is going to... Not figuratively, but their mind. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I don't want to stretch the point too much. Because there are some parameters here. But the removal of sin always generates new life Jesus didn't say rise up and go home he said your sins are forgiven now rise up and go home that is a beautiful picture of salvation 
you come to Christ crippled. And when you trust in him, you come out whole. That's the gospel. Let me close it. I thoroughly enjoyed this sermon this morning. I don't usually say that because I'm usually like all geared up. Develop a heart of compassion for people. The next door neighbor, your friend, family member. People you see at the grocery store. Be respectful. But develop a heart of compassion for people. Seek to bring people to Jesus. Lovingly, carefully, methodically, not giving, quitting. Don't let obstacles stop you. Pastor, I don't know how to share the gospel. John 3.16, life before Christ, the day I accepted Christ, and how my life is now. You don't need to be, have a master's of divinity degree to share the gospel. I can tell you that. All you need is a belief that God can do anything in that person's life like he did in yours. Don't let obstacles stop you. Nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. You know, you say, well, I witnessed to this guy and he didn't trust in Christ. You don't know where down the road where somebody else is going to share the gospel and go, now I know what that guy was talking about. 